0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Sparks, Nevada, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Sparks, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Sparks. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and today we have a pretty exciting class. I think this is a very practical class. This is the class where you find out my best tips for getting mortgage quotes from lenders. When you're about to go get a mortgage on a property, I think it's prudent to call around and get quotes from a couple different lenders because they do vary. The cost to get the loan vary. The mortgage interest rates can vary a little bit, probably a little bit less than costs, although, you know, they're related, right? Like you're, you're paying a fee for one thing and you get a different rate based on that. So, you know, they can definitely vary in that way too. But today we're going to go over some tips for getting mortgage uh, quotes from lenders. You know, I I did a whole class before, like a two-hour version of a class where we talked about evaluating and directly comparing two different lenders or three different lenders. And I walked you through like, you know, how you use their kind of like uh, their good faith estimates and their, you know, kind of like closing cost estimates and what their fee structures were and try to compare them. And I showed just how difficult that process really is. And that's not exactly this class. This is sort of like the, the light version of that class where we talk about all the different tips for you know getting quotes from lenders, how you do it, some of the things like that. And I think I do cover that in that class. It's been a long time since I even looked at the outline or listened to that class, but it was pretty good. Anyway, let's get started today. Tips for getting mortgage quotes from lenders. So um, finding a lender, your experienced investor-focused real estate agent is probably your best source of referral for lenders. You know, someone who is in the business of working with a bunch of investors, they've got clients closing on loans regularly, they probably know, maybe not the best, right? I mean, because they may not have experienced the best, but they probably have some pretty good lenders in their queue of lenders that their clients, their investor clients have used and have had good experiences with and especially when you have some clients that are, you know, they're like the type that will call 34 different lenders to get all the, the different quotes and they'll say, okay, you know, I've narrowed it down to these three. They're all really similar. I think I like this guy best. That is the, the, the type of client that can help a real estate agent, sort through a very large list um, to do that. And then, of course, the, the agent has the benefit of saying, hey, look, you know, I can't say that this is obviously the best lender, but this is a good lender that my clients have had good experiences with. And not saying that you won't have, you know, the the unusual, weird experience with them, but overall, I think they've been really good. Okay. So I think getting a referral from your real estate agent, a experienced investor-focused real estate agent, is probably your best source. I think your next tier for finding a lender is attending a local real estate investor meeting, uh, meeting lenders there or meeting lenders on your own, other real estate investors that, you know, asking them, Hey, you know, I know you just bought this rental property. Who'd you end up using for a lender? You know, tell me about the process. Who'd you interview? Um, you know, what'd you find out when you interviewed them? You know, who had the best rates, who, who was going to give you uh, you know, some extra help or, or they were a good resource for different things. Uh, they all can be good sources of referrals for you to find great lenders. You can um you can also call you know multiple banks under mortgage brokers, you know, cold call them. Uh, a lot of them are advertising, but I, I think you will find that real estate agents and kind of other local investors are going to be your best source there. Now realize, I wanna I wanna point this out because I don't think a lot of folks realize this and understand how big of a deal it can possibly be. Um Not that this comes up that often. No, I I like want to do two simultaneous things for you. Number one is I want you to realize just how significant of a consequence this can be for you. But then I also don't want to scare you because it doesn't happen that frequently at all. But it's a good reason to understand why you may want to put a lot of weight into this lender and not maybe use one of these random people you've never talked to before to save 50 bucks or 500 bucks or even $5,000. Um, because it could be pretty rough for you if things don't go your way. And I'll explain this here in a second. So um, when you go and you buy a property, uh, you as the buyer are under contract with the seller of the property as another party of the contract. What you will notice though, is that the lender typically does not sign the contract. Why doesn't the lender sign the contract? Because the lender is not a party to your contract. They're not one of the people that has obligations in the contract itself, which is an interesting subtlety when you think about it, because we're relying on the lender to perform, but they have no contractual obligations in the contract itself. Now, if they really pooped the bed, could you probably go after them? And, you know, especially if you actually had harm, could you go after the lender and say, you know, you didn't perform to this? And depending on what the reason was for them not performing, Um, Could you maybe have some recourse? Sure, maybe you could do that. But I don't think it's as clear cut as that most of the time. So the reason I'm making this as a point is if the lender that you choose, and it's your choice, you choose the lender, right? You as the buyer choose the lender. If the lender that you choose does not perform, you, the buyer, are typically the one in default in the contract. You are the one that is in default in the contract. You can't say a, a reasonable excuse for why you didn't show up to closing with the money is not my lender didn't perform because you had the choice of which lender to pick. You were supposed to do your due diligence. You were supposed to, you know, check them out, make sure that they were the one that, you know, could get you good rates and could actually perform on the contract that you're in. You can't use the lender as an excuse for you not showing up with money. And if you put up a large earnest money Deposit on your contract, you could be at risk of losing the contract, and most of the time, and you know in a normal market, you know, uh, you're you're working with a seller. And the seller really wants to sell. And I really want to sell to you because, you know, they had the property on the market for 180 days before you came along and you made an offer and you guys came to an agreement and you've already gotten through the inspection and you've kind of negotiated all the stuff you needed to negotiate. And, and they feel like, Hey, look, you know, I just really want this thing to close. I don't want to go through all this again and have to start over. That would be another 180 days. And, you know, maybe I'm going to get less for my property and maybe, you know, someone else coming in is going to want to inspect me harder. And, you know, all this other stuff could come up. I don't want to deal with that. I really want Want this buyer to close. If you, if you and your lender screw up and your the lender you pick doesn't show up with money for whatever reason, there could be lots of reasons for them to do that. But if they don't show up with money, your seller may decide, hey, look, you know, how quickly could you get it done with another lender? And they say, okay, we'll extend for seven days or 10 days or 14 days, however long it takes you to get your other lender and have them do a rush to get everything they need to do in order to close. However, the seller is not required to do that. Seller is not required to do that. And imagine a different market where the seller had 20 offers, you outbid everyone else, and maybe the day after they accepted your contract, someone else calls them and says, Hey, um, you know, sorry, I just noticed the property. I really, really want it. Um, you know, what was the winning offer? You your your agent or the seller tells the the new buyer, the 21st buyer that came along, you know, what the winning offer was, and that particular Uh, Sellers like, oh, had I only known, um, you know, you would have offered me $5,000 more than this other guy. Well, if this one falls out, then, you know, you could definitely have it for $5,000 more. And the guy's like, that would be great because this is my perfect property. How willing do you think the seller is in that particular case for them to give you an extra 10 or 14 days if your lender doesn't perform? I think it's less likely. And then you're out your earnest money because it's not like the earnest money. Um, You know, you get that back if you didn't perform, you know, all the way up to closing. A lot of times your your deadlines, all your deadlines were making sure your lender is in place and you've approved your financing. That's usually not the day of closing. That's usually a couple days before. And it may vary a little bit market to market, you know, depending on what your market, what is customary in your market. But in a lot of markets, it is like your deadlines, your last deadline to object on something are a few days before closing because the seller is wanting to make decisions based on you moving forward. They need to know that, hey, look, you're good. I'm ready to go. I'm showing up at closing and everything's good to go there. So realizing that using a random lender gives you a random chance of closing. That may be that they'll perform, but... They may not perform. And remember, the lender is not typically a party to the contract. You as the buyer are, and you choose the lender. If the lender doesn't perform. You are in default as the buyer, not the lender. Okay. Now we have that entire separate class I mentioned on evaluating mortgages and comparing lenders. So I'm going to put a link up to that here in the show notes um, or in the kind of like panel for uh, coaching clients, stuff like that. All right. So let's talk about some tips for calling lenders. A few days ago, I covered the, uh, the, the loan comparison worksheet I show a little picture of it on here but this is a good little tool if you're going to call up your lender just to kind of you know see what the different rates are you can write them down just to kind of keep track or you can write it down a piece of paper it doesn't really matter but this is a good tool for you to be able to see what the rates are what the costs were what the PMI rate was if you're doing a you know less than 20 percent download and then you can see what the payment would be for that and you can kind of compare so it's a good tool for doing that so if you're going to call multiple lenders, and not every one of my clients would call multiple lenders, right? Sometimes it's a lender that they've used before, and they're like, look, they have all my stuff. I know they can get it done. You know, a whole bunch of other clients of James's have used this or, you know, whatever. They, they know that they're going with the same one. They're not going to call two or three or four or five different lenders to do this. But I, I do think that there is a percentage of clients that do call you know, two or three lenders just to kind of get a feel for what quotes are with the different lenders to try to find them. So if you're going to do that, you're going to call lenders and try to like compare quotes, ask for the rates and do that on the same day. You cannot do a valid comparison. If you call one lender on Monday, one on Tuesday and one on Wednesday, it's not the same rates change every day. So you can't compare Monday's rates to Tuesday's rates or Tuesday's rates to Wednesday's Wednesday's rates. And I happen to see someone who is on the webinar right now who had a very interesting experience like this where we were in the election period and uh, they were looking at a property and they were pretty comfortable in the rates that they were getting. And then they called their lender on the next day and there was a lot of chaos going on in the marketplace, a lot of uncertainty, and the rates had changed a lot. So imagine you had called one lender on one day and you called another lender on another day and those rates were vastly different, not necessarily because the lender was more expensive. In fact, the one that had the higher rate may have been the cheaper lender, but because the rates themselves had changed, they can change a lot day to day. So you have to call them all on the same day of doing that. Okay. Now, when you call the lender, a lot of lenders, not all of them, but a lot of lenders are going to want to pull your credit score. They're going to want to tell you, look, you know, in order for me to give you a valid rate, I'm going to need you know your credit score. And, and that is true. It is true that in order for them to give you a valid quote and estimate cost and everything like that, they're going to need to have your credit score to do that when you finally do the loan. But when you're calling around to one, two, or three, or four lenders, you don't necessarily want all of them paying your credit report all at the same time. and 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 so for that reason, what I would recommend you do is, you know, tell them, look, Either have the first one do it, so you know your credit score, or use like one of these services where you can estimate and and you know like, hey, look, my credit score is 785. So why don't you just give me quotes for stuff above 760? You know, say it's 760 or better, or use 760, and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be above 760. And so you can just kind of get a comparison of everybody at a rate. So either you tell them, you know, kind of like what you estimate your score to be and say, look, you know, if I decide to go with you, we'll verify my, my credit score then. Right now, I just really want to get a feel for, like, how your rates and fees are, and then if I decide to go with you, then we'll do that. So I'm using everybody, I'm telling everybody my credit score is 760, let's go ahead and get rates at those. Then they'll pull rates at 760, and they will figure out what the current rates are and current costs are for someone who has a 760 credit score. In in general, I only let the lender who is going to actually do my loan pull my credit, partially because I lock my credit down, I don't want to have it open at this period of time either. Okay. So only the one that you choose. If you don't know your credit score, have your first one pull your credit if you want to do it that way. And then maybe you have it paying twice, which isn't going to be that big of a deal. Uh, you know, the credit reporting companies, they understand when you're shopping for things, sometimes you'll have more than one soft pull on your credit for that. Okay. So tell the others that you're calling when you're doing the comparison what your score is. And if you decide to use them, you'll have them pull it pulled in then ask questions that are important to you. And I'll give you some ideas of questions on the next couple of slides of like things that you may want to ask. Now, I want to warn you, you really don't want to go and interrogate your lender. You don't want to go and say, you know, tie them to a chair, you know, put the little, like little bag over their head and waterboard them and say, answer these questions, answer all of them right, right now. And you don't want to do that. You really want to ask the most important questions that you have for your lender and to get the information you need to be able to make a good comparison. And I think what tends to happen is we tend to ask more questions to the lender that we are likely to choose. If you get quotes from the lender and the rates are like much higher than everyone else, you can ask like one or two or three qualifying questions, but you're really just sort of almost being polite at that point. Really what you want is the one that you are going to pick, that's the one you're sort of verifying all the different stuff with um, to kind of move forward. Also, rates aren't everything. Rates and fees aren't everything. I totally would be willing to pay a small premium for someone who is going to be much easier to work with, much better to communicate with maybe add some value in other ways like helping me improve my credit score although my credit score is fine but you know if i had some credit blemishes and they were they were kind of skilled in that area you know that is worth something. is it worth you know paying 0.5% more on a loan probably not is it worth 500 bucks probably is it worth $1,000? Probably, you know, You know, $2,000? Yeah, maybe, I, I think depending on what it is, sure. But I think you need to find like where your comfort level is and what you're willing to pay for. You're not just paying and trying to minimize everything. You're not trying to save and squeeze every little last penny out of the deal. I think that's a, that's a penny-wise, pound-foolish approach to doing this business, okay? Um, will they go the extra mile to help you get approved? I definitely had... Lenders who have gone to bat for clients in the past with underwriters, kind of fighting for their case and their situation. I've also had lenders in the past where we've had some really unusual, wacky things going on with appraisals, where they have eaten uh, appraisal costs, some very expensive appraisal costs in some cases, because they wanted that client as a repeat client long term, because they know that they were going to buy a lot of properties. Okay. So just realize that it's not always about minimizing price. All right, let's talk about some of the lender questions just to give you some like tips for when you're calling the lender and you're asking them some stuff here. So one of the things is, you know, what expertise do you offer for putting the financing together? So tell me about your experience. Like what sets you apart? Like what why are you different from everyone else? And let them kind of talk about it. You know, let them, let them kind of sell you on why they should do business with you. And then maybe ask them, do you know specifically about financing programs for nomads? I think that most lenders... Are not going to know what the nomad strategy is, so you may need to educate them. But if they tell you it can't be done, that may not be your lender because it definitely can be done. So you may want to uh, like ask them, say, "Look, you know, my, here's my plan. This is my strategy. This is what I'm thinking about doing. I'm going to buy a property as an owner occupant. I'm going to move into the property. I want to put you know three and a half percent down and buy a duplex, triplex, or fourplex if I can. Or if I buy an owner occupant property, maybe I'll put you know five percent down or three percent down for the conventional loan." or if you're you know a veteran, you do 0% down, or you're going to buy a rural property, you do 0% down. You know, tell them what your plan is for doing the first property and then say, look, I'm going to live there for a year. Is the requirement for people to do an owner-occupant property for them to live in their year? If they don't know the answer to that, that could potentially be you know a, a small, not a red flag, but like a... I don't know, a, a dark yellow flag. <laughs> I don't know how to describe that. A, a little mini warning, right? Like, a, hey, they don't know what the owner-occupant requirement is for loans. So they may need to look that up. And if someone's never done it before, but they still have great rates, maybe you're willing to train them, work with them. Who knows? But you sort of ask them, so I'm going to do this. How long do I need to live in the property? You have to live in the property for a year. Okay, great. So after a year, can I take that property, convert it to a rental, buy the next property as an owner-occupant, put 5% down conventional on that one, You know, use the rent that I'm getting on the property that I'm moving out to to help me qualify for the loan and buy the next property and repeat this process. And have them explain to you how the loans work and whether or not you can do that strategy. Get all of your questions about whether they can do the nomad strategy and how it works and how they think about it from them. They are the ones that are going to be your partner. I'm using partner in quotes because they're going to be providing you 95% 95% of the value of the property, they're going to loan you that money, usually for 30 years at a fixed rate interest rate. And usually the interest rate is pretty low in comparison to just things in general. So you know, they're going to be partnering with you to loan you, in some cases, millions of dollars. Now, you're going to go do 10 $500,000 properties, they're probably loaning you $5 million. You know, so pretty serious. So just ask them about, you know, financing programs for nomads, ask them to get some clarity on like how that works, you know, what, what the kind of hangups would be, you know, maybe even if you know that you're going to use them, don't do this with like, you know, the people that you're not going to use, but if you're going to use them, they say, Hey, let's, let's walk through my situation and let's see what it would look like a year from now when I go and convert this property to a rental, let's see if I'll be able to qualify. What's my debt to income ratio look like if I hypothetically bought this property and then a year from now I'm getting this amount of rent. Will I be able to qualify for the next one? What do I need to do? How do I need to change things? That's what I'm talking about, about adding more value than just price, right? Am I willing to pay 500 bucks for someone who's gonna help me plan out my whole strategy and make sure that I can do it? And like be on my side and help me optimize and say, look, you know, we're gonna need to improve your credit score over the next year. You could do this one fine, but we really want to improve that. Here are the things we need to do, and this is what we need to do for the next loan. And you know, if you can't get this much in rent for this property, we're gonna run into some problems. So they'll help you with stuff like that. And then ask them, you know, what are the current rates for owner-occupant loans? If you're gonna do like a nomad or house hacking strategy or something like that, if you're not gonna do owner-occupant house hacking nomad type strategy as an investor, ask them for investor loan rates. You know, what is the rate for 20% down? What's the par rate? No points. And what is it for, you know, someone with a 720 credit score, 725 credit score, 760 credit score, okay? What's the difference between 20% down and 25% down today? Get ideas from that, okay? What are the current rates? And then how many loans can I get as an investor in my own name? And then if you are married and you're thinking about doing more than 10 or whatever the current loan limit is, ask them about like loan planning for me and my spouse doing different ones. You know, what if I do one and my spouse does one? Then I do one and my spouse does one. And, you know, do we have to have separate tax returns? And, you know, it's it's not unreasonable if they don't know the answer to say, you know, can you check with the underwriter that you guys use and get back to me? I don't think that's unreasonable at all. You know, you're not doing that for a lender you're not going to use. You know, you're not going to do this like as your first pass, but when you start digging deep and you're talking to a lender, asking those questions, I think, become important. Okay. What type of documentation will I need to process the loan? Especially important if you're a uh, self-employed person, you know, because I think that varies a little bit more, but, you know, you want to find out from them what type of documentation we need. Do you have any unusual situation happen to you? Did you just change jobs? Did you just get a promotion? Did you switch companies? Did you have a long period of unemployment? Like stuff that could be a factor for you, ask about those things, okay? I think yesterday or the day before, we talked about the, the common things that lenders will ask for when you go to get a loan, but you know, use that list and verify. What type of down payment will I need to buy a property? If you don't know the answer to these things, I mean, if you haven't watched all the financing classes, you know, ask them questions about like, you know, can I do a nothing download program? You know, do you have down payment assistance programs I could use for buying my first property or second property? You know, can I do a, uh, you know, can I do a VA loan? You know, I'm a veteran. Do I have, you know, what do I need in order to do that? You know, what do I need in order to do a rural property USDA loan? Or, you know, what about this 3% down conventional or 5% down? But ask them, if you don't know the answers, ask them for the different loan types and get clarification on, you know, what's the difference between these? You know, what's the what's the difference in rates? What's the difference in that? I mean, that's part of what that spreadsheet, the loan comparison spreadsheet is for. It gives you spots to kind of fill in the blanks, but they may have additional loan products that, I don't know about right now, or that have changed since I did this class, or, you know, that they just have specific access to. It's like unique to them, okay? So uh, what about fees and teams? So about fees, how do I pay you for your service? And in most cases, they're going to tell you, look, you pay this sort of fee when I get the loan or whatever it is, or in some cases, they may charge you an upfront fee or whatever they're doing. But understanding how you pay them for their service and what the fees are, I think it's important. Is there a fee on loans that are closed? I think that's a common way that they get paid. And what is the fee? Is there a fee? It's not written down here, but is there a fee if I don't close? What if I get to the point, we go through, we get an appraisal done, and maybe this particular lender does not have you provide a credit card to pay for the appraisal up front. Maybe they actually pay for the appraisal and they just charge it as a uh, line item on closing. Some lenders do it that way. Most lenders, especially most independent mortgage brokers, will ask you to put your credit card in and pay the uh, appraiser directly. Although maybe that varies a little bit market to market. That's something I don't know. But I think that some mortgage brokers, especially around here, will have you pay for the appraisal with a credit card outside that. A lot of the credit unions, for some reason, they don't charge you for the appraisal up front, they'll just charge you at closing. And one of the weird things about some of the credit unions around here is if for some reason you end up not closing on that loan, a lot of times they'll eat the appraisal. They'll just they won't charge you for it. But I don't think that's mostly true with different mortgage brokers. So understand that. Ask them. You know, what if I don't close on a loan? What if I get you know a week before closing and something happens? Um, you know, is, are there any fees I need to pay you? Understanding that if that's an, if that's really important to you, it rarely comes up, but it could come up. You know, is there an upfront fee? Ask them that. Is there a minimum fee percentage and/or dollar amount? If so, what is it? You know, some of will tell you, "Look, if you're doing these really small loans, it's going to be it's going to be more expensive than doing like a five hundred thousand dollar loan because I'm getting paid a percentage of the loan amount." So if you're coming in there and you're buying a five hundred thousand dollar property and you're putting you know eighty percent down, you only want to get a hundred thousand dollar loan that may be more expensive. What happens if I end up not doing a loan with you? Talked about that, team. Do you have any assistants or staff that work with you that I will be interacting with? You would be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but I think you would be surprised how many kind of setups are such that the loan broker that you talk to, their sole role is salesman. They are out there shaking hands, kissing babies, meeting people, attending meetings. They're the ones that are going out there and generating the business. But once you decide to do the loan with their team, you never hear from them again. Because they're not the ones doing the loan. They're out there still going to meetings, meeting people, drumming up business, and they have a team of assistants that handle the loans. You know, in some ways, it's sort of like, it's not exactly, but it's very similar to how I worked as a real estate broker. You know, there was a team, it was me and my wife, Tammy, and for the most part, if you wanted to go see a house, most of the time you'd see me. You know, I was out there teaching classes. I was there having lunches with investors. I was doing all that different stuff. But then, when you actually wanted to write a contract, we'd be out looking at a property. You're like, okay, I want to write a contract on this. I would literally get on the phone while we were there and say, Tam, you know, we need to write up this contract. This is the terms. This is what they want to do. And Tammy would take it from there, and she pretty much handled contract to close that entire stuff. Now, I would get on the phone, answer questions. I would uh, you know do some negotiations and stuff like that. But for the most part. Tammy was shepherding your deal in from when you wrote the offer all the way through to closing and honestly, even after closing. But if you have questions about stuff, you know, usually I was the point of contact to do that, but I don't think that's an unusual setup. Having someone who's really good at, you know, they they call this the rainmaker role, right? Like the guy who's out there, gal's out there generating the business. And then there's the people that they have the detail oriented, you know, attention to detail, filling out the contracts, following the paperwork. The, the kind of sitting in the office and honestly it's probably a better setup at least I, I i'll tell you my my experience is it's a better setup because if you are constantly distracted you're like hey look i'm filling out paperwork and doing your contract and then oh man it's 11 o'clock i need to go show another property to so-and-so you get like out of your groove and then you got to come back to it later and you're like where was i oh yeah oh, i was doing this and then things can happen right? Like you get distracted, you like go to a meeting. I'm I'm sure this is true of like other people in other jobs where you're doing like your core competency type work. And then you have a meeting in the afternoon and then your whole day is blown because you like, can't really go deep into the work you need to do because you know, you have a meeting in an hour and then the meeting lasts, you know, an hour and a half. And then at the end of that, you're like, oh man, I had all this meeting stuff. I don't really have enough time to go deep into the work. And so you you're distracted and you're hard to do the stuff that you really need to do. But because you can't switch back and forth easily i guess is the way to describe it so you want to know you know who am i going to be dealing with and so in some ways you want to know if you're going to deal well with them not necessarily the sales guy the sales guy could be awesome could be like super friendly you know friendly with everybody you know the kind of like back slapper really happy all friendly be around and then the person you're working with could be like total meanie who just is like you know, like not very friendly at all and not, not very good at answering questions, but I don't know. Not saying that Tammy's that, but that's, uh, that's, I've seen stuff like that before. All right, what would I be dealing with you on directly? What would I be dealing with them on? Just kind of getting some clarity on that. All right, references. So what percentage of your business is from new clients? What percentage is from repeat business? I will tell you this changes over the course of a career. When you're brand new, everything's new. All of it's new business, you know, hardly any of it is repeat. But you get to a certain point, especially if you stop doing business generation things, that the majority of it is from repeat business, or it should be. If it's not, that's a warning sign, right? Uh, What percentage is referred from existing clients? This was a major point for me. Like we had a lot of existing clients referring people. Um, And if they're not getting referrals, that's probably a sign that the quality of their business may not be what. They think it is, right? Because you should get referrals in this type of business. Now, if, if that's like, if someone tells you, um, you know, I don't get very many referrals or something like that, it could mean that they're new, which is definitely a possibility. Um, and in a business like this, sometimes people cluster together. Sometimes their their clientele is relatively young new people and there's not a lot of them necessarily buying houses as an example or maybe it's really really old people and they're not buying houses or you know so it's like you got to understand a little bit more you can't just use this as a number and make a decision based on this but it's something to think about uh here's another question do you have do you have a few that means three in my mind existing clients that you worked with in the last six months that does not mean friends from high school. You want recent people, ideally ones that are sort of arm's length transactions, although in, in this business, it's a lot of people that you know, so it's hard to get truly objective sort of separation that I can call as references. You probably want to get investors, Nomad references when possible. You know, someone who is doing something similar to you. It'd be helpful to understand that. Which goes back to like how we told you about how to find them to begin with. If you find an investor who recommends them, well, then you already have talked to them. You got to get that reference already. And I've realized that this is what you tell your, the guy you're interviewing, or the girl you're interviewing. Hey, I realize people don't always agree. If I happen to stumble upon your most troublesome client, what would be their biggest complaint about your service? And then here's a warning. If they say they've never had a problem, they've probably not had enough clients because problems naturally come up in business. I, I know that I definitely had clients that were like, oh, that was a little rocky. And and it's it's natural. I mean, things come up that were unexpected. Um, And I you know I don't always cater to what everyone thinks things should be like, right? Some people tell me, look, you know, you should do this. I'm like, that's just not my business. That's not how I do it. I'd have to think of an example, but you know, that's just not how I would normally work things. Uh, Have you worked with any real estate investors nomads that have invested like I'm doing? And can I tell them about your service? So in conclusion. Get a referral to find a great lender to reduce the risk of being surprised. That's really what we're talking about. We want to reduce the chance. It's not saying that you will never be surprised, even with a known entity, right? I I have a saying, and and I'm not sure if it's 100% true, but I think every service provider goes lame at some point. At some point in time, something happens where the wheels fall off because they're distracted, they're trying to grow, they're trying to expand in a different way, they're they've got staff turnover, they've got personal problems, but there's all sorts of reasons why sometime at some point in time every person, every service provider, every person is this is probably true of every employee, right? Like at some point something goes wrong and something happens. It is the extreme rare case where someone will have a perfect record and nothing will ever have gone wrong. So what we're trying to do is reduce the risk, not eliminate it. Interview your lender, get quotes all on the same day with the same credit score. And then have a conversation, not an interrogation. Don't waterboard them based on the interview questions and some of the ideas we've given you based on that. Okay? That's all I got. Any final questions? I don't see any. Thank you all for coming. I do appreciate it. Good to see everyone live. Most of the time we just get people listening to the recording, so it's great to see people live. Thanks to everybody much and I will talk to you all soon. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in sparks is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.